0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get to it. Ephesians chapter 1. We're back in Ephesians after a two-week break. Remember about a month ago we started our series through the book of Ephesians. We got through two messages and then we took a little break uh, to to do water baptism on one Sunday a couple weeks ago, which was glorious. Last week, we looked specifically at our responsibility as a church to, to consider creating a culture of adoption. This week, we're back in Ephesians, and we'll be in Ephesians you know, probably until, we, until Jesus comes back or until we end, and we're not in a rush. We're not going to a fire, so um, we're just going to work our way through it. Now, today, we're actually in the same verses that we were in the first couple weeks, all right? because this is so glorious. This is so good. I mean, this steak is so thick. This is like this is like Hunter's pub sort of steak right here. I mean, it's thick, it's juicy, but it's not a little tiny little thing you got. I mean, it's big and wide and deep. And so we're gonna we're gonna stare one more time at the first fourteen verses of Ephesians. This is this is glorious, all right? And today we're gonna look specifically at this idea of the Trinity the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we're going to look at how we should respond to this Trinity. So here's here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to read the scripture, uh, but I want us to get a couple things before we read Ephesians 1 through 14. Again, by the way, if you're using one of the Bibles, it's in the chair in front of you. That's on page 688, and you're welcome to keep that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you take that, read it, and it'd be really helpful for you if you're not familiar with the scriptures to follow along with me as I read this passage, and then we're going to jump all around, and then we're going to come back to that. So here's, here's what we're going to do today. Here's what I don't want you to miss as we kind of dig into this. So the first thing I want you to see is that what we're doing right now is really important for the second half of Ephesians that we'll get to, Lord willing, in, in a, a month or two or several, okay? Because there's a very clear structure to Ephesians that if you miss, you really miss the whole point of it. And the structure to Ephesians, in fact, the structure to the whole Bible The structure to many of Paul's letters is is that the it begins with truth about God. We call that sort of grammatically indicatives, statements about who God is and what he has done to work the salvation of his people. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians are all truths about God. there are things that God has done. All the verbs, God is doing the acting, they're all finished, they're past tense. It's God has saved us in Christ Jesus, all right? That's, that's sort of the, the tone of the first chapter, first three chapters of Ephesians. And then the next three chapters, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, are all what we would call grammatically imperatives. They're commands that say, you should do this. It's Ephesians 5 that says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Or Ephesians 4, walk in light, reject darkness, avoid any appearance of sexual immorality, things like that. Children, obey your parents. Now here's the deal, guys. If you don't see that structure, that the indicatives, the truths about God and who he is and what he has already done for us, if you don't see that they come before the imperatives, in other words, do this, Then we mix the message of the gospel up because the imperatives, the commands of scripture, rest on, in fact, they flow out of the truth about what God has already done and enabled his people to do. So the message of Christianity is not do better and maybe God will accept you if you reach a certain standard of goodness. The message of the gospel, the message of the Bible, the message of Ephesians, the message of Christianity is God has done this. He has redeemed a people. He has worked their salvation. And from that truth now, then these people are empowered to respond by the grace that he gives them to the very thing that he commands them to do, which is to do these things so that, he would, so that we would glorify his name. Okay, so don't miss that, all right? So what we're doing here in Ephesians 1 is going to be really, really important when we get to Ephesians 5 and we wonder how we're going to live out these commands as married people or as children or in this dark world. All right, next we're going to look at this. Uh, next, the other thing I want to just kind of cue you in on is that we're going to look at a very... Uh, a very misunderstood, often neglected area of doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, a lot of times Christians in our age sort of just throw up the, the mystery flag very easily and just say, oh, well, that's a mystery. Let's just move on to some other thing. I think if we do that, we really sell ourselves short. Short. God has clearly revealed himself in this way in the Bible to us, and he has given it to us for our good. And so we don't want to throw up the mystery flag too quickly. There's a lot more that we can say about the Trinity other than, wow, I believe it, and gosh, that's hard to understand. So we're going to go a little bit deeper today. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the passage. We're going to zoom out to like a 30,000-foot level, and we're going to just look at a few statements of like the 30,000-foot view of the Trinity, just doctrinal statements, not just in Ephesians. One, but just kind of scripture-wide, very briefly. Then we're going to zoom in to the work of the Trinity in salvation in just these 14 verses. And then we're going to look at how we should respond to the Trinity as Christians. Here's my goal, friends, before I pray. Listen, you got to see this. This is what we do. We're not, we didn't sing some songs, and that's worship. And now we're going to do a little sermon We're still worshiping. Here's what we want to do. We want to stare at the picture that God gives us in his word, which is perfect of himself, and we want to stare at it and stare at it and stare at it until our hearts explode in worship. That's what we were created to do, not to gather more knowledge about some difficult-to-comprehend doctrinal point. We were created to worship. And we're going to—I'm just a tour guide— kind of like taking you to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we're going to look at something that is beautiful to behold. We're going to go to the edge of the Himalayas, and we're going to stare at them and say, oh, that is beautiful. And the very act of beholding is in and of itself worship, which helps us then become the very thing that God has called us to be. So, So we're not looking for three little points to scurry off, to write down, although I hope you write some stuff down, to scurry off so that we can acquire knowledge. I want us to stare into the face of the triune God today, and be moved in our hearts with affection. If you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, here's the best thing for you is to, for a sustained amount of time, which I'm calling this sermon, which I'm not going to give a time frame to. I'm just going to finish when I finish. I want you to stare at the face of God, and my prayer is, is that as you see the thing that is most lovely in all that is, it will cause you to want that thing, and you will pass from death to life and become a Christian even today right. that's my plan all right said I got my cards on the table that's what I'm doing let me catch my breath for a second you guys talk amongst yourself all right let's let me read and then let's pray Ephesians 1 1 through 14 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the Saints who are in Ephesus that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What a text. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to You now in humility and joy, needing Your help. I need Your help. I am a crooked stick. My life is full of anxieties and insecurities and hypocrisy. But you are gracious and you delight in using pardoned rebels like me who are still very much in process to communicate your truth. So Lord, would you do that through me today? Not for my sake, but for the sake of my friends in this room today. For the Christians that are here, Lord, would you stir our hearts with affection for Jesus? Would we fall more in love with you as a result of what we think about today? And for my friends in this room who are not yet Christians, God, would you be so kind as to cause them to pass from death to life? Would you give them a new heart so that they can breathe faith and trust in Jesus alone? Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me read to you a statement that's on our website that is our doctrinal statement about what we believe about the Trinity. This is not just something we came up with. This is something that many, many uh, historic, faithful Christian churches, a statement very similar to this, have used throughout the centuries to define what we believe about our triune God. So I think we'll have it on the screen. This is what we believe about the Trinity. We believe in one God. Eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect, both in His love and in His holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Immortal and eternal, He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning sustains and sovereignly rules over all things and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. Alright, so let's look now, that's our doctrinal statement about the trinity which many Christian churches have shared uh, and in fact, back to all Christian churches have shared something very similar that gets to the same truth as that through the centuries Let's look now, just very quickly, kind of a brief survey of the Trinity in Scriptures. And there's three things that I want to say about the Trinity to help us get our mind around it before we just throw up the flag that, oh, that's difficult to understand. The first is clearly that there is one God. The Old Testament, we read it this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, when we dedicated Forest, Moses writes to Israel, these are God's words through Moses Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Okay, so all through the Old Testament we could spend our whole time together just reading scripture that speak to the monotheistic nature or in other words the one God nature of the Old Testament in in, there in Deuteronomy is the hallmark verse of that. But it's continued in the New Testament. So in the New Testament some might think well now we have Jesus on the scene and he's claiming to be God so now do we have two gods, but even in the, the answer to that is no, by the way, but even in the New Testament, there is this affirmation in the Holy Scriptures of one God. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so there we have a clear statement continuing the oneness of God, the monotheistic nature of Christianity. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, and again, I could read a bunch of verses both in the Old and New Testament, but I just for the sake of time, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, in that particular verse, he's emphasizing the humanity of Jesus in his substitutionary work on the cross, but still he's talking about the oneness of God. There is one God. And so, just as a summary statement, as we look at the Trinity, We need to realize that that means that there is one God. Now, the second thing that we want to say about the Trinity is that God is three persons, one in three. He's three persons. We see this, again, just a brief overview of this as we look at some some important scriptures in the New Testament. We see the Trinity in operation in Jesus' baptism. I'm not going to read this verse to you, but just go to Matthew chapter 3 this afternoon and read clearly where you see Jesus submitting himself to water baptism by his cousin, John the Baptist, and he then is baptized, and you hear the Father speaking, and then you have the Son being baptized, and you have the Holy Spirit descending on the Son as a dove. And so right there in the baptism of Jesus, you you see the Trinity. You have the Father issuing his pleasure, decreeing, declaring his pleasure in the Son. You have the Son... Being baptized, and you have the Holy Spirit descending on the Son. You see the Trinity at the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter twenty-eight, when Jesus. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, uh, right as He's just about to ascend, and there's still some cats that are doubting Jesus, like He's resurrected from the dead, fed a bunch of people, raised a couple of people from the grave, and still people are like, ah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's pretty good, but I mean, still, I mean, that's that's encouraging. Remember that little little deviation I took about how incredibly encouraging it is that even some of His disciples. Still doubted him even after his resurrection? Were you there that Sunday? Were you awake? I don't know. It was encouraging to me. I'm just sort of encouraging myself even as I'm preaching this. But so at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus in his great commission says, Go and teach them about me. Go and, go and preach the gospel into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so even Jesus himself is clearly showing us that God is three persons. In John chapter 14, verse 26, this is what Jesus, this is one of the great Verses where we see the Trinity just present even in one verse. Jesus says this in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So you see even there in that one verse a distinction. God is one, but there's this distinction of three persons. You see the Father sending the Holy Spirit, and this is being communicated to the disciples through The Son In the beginning verses of 1 Peter 1, you see Peter talking about this, too, about how he's writing this letter to those uh, Christians in that area. And they were Christians according, in 1 Peter 1, too, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And so God is not only one, that's the first thing we need to say about the Trinity, but he is also three persons. And then the third and final thing that we'll say about the Trinity from just an overarching 30,000 foot level is that each of these persons is fully and equally God. Now, I'm not going to spend any time convincing you or trying to show you from Scripture that the Father is God because I think we all sort of, we don't struggle with that one, right? We know when we believe in God and so there's not a sort of mental hurdle for us to get over when we think of the Godness of the Father. Clearly we can see that, but what about the Son? Is Jesus, did the scriptures say that Jesus is fully and equally God with the Father? Well, again, we could spend all day just reading scriptures that attest to that fact, but let me give you just a few. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you keep reading in John chapter 1, you realize that that Word that John is speaking about there, capital W, is Jesus. And so clearly, it's saying that Jesus was with God, the Father, and Jesus is God. By the way, just a little incidental little side trail here. That verse is one of the verses that the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses mistranslated because of his faulty understanding of Greek grammatical structure, and it really makes their whole sort of view of God fall apart, which we'll talk about in a second. And if you're interested in going deeper on that, come Wednesday night, to David Hinckley's seminar on cults, and he can break that down for you in much further detail. But even, so they interpret that wrongly, that the word was a God, small g, not that the word Jesus was the God, but come Wednesday night for that. And then also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we see again clearly Jesus being presented to us in divinity, in deity, as God. Speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 1, 3, the writer writes, he is the radiance of the glory of God and is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, clearly ascribing divinity to Jesus. And then it just says it outright in Romans 9.5. There's many other verses I could read, but this is just one. This just throws it out there. Romans 9.5, Paul, in his argument to the Jews, he says, To them, meaning the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever amen so clearly right there we got it and i could read others but for the sake of time i won't christ is god okay and so jesus clearly is god god the father is god god the son is god what about the holy spirit the spirit is also god again we could spend more time on this but let me just give you one example from scripture and this one is is uh I mean, I don't know, if you're not just a little bit humbled by this verse that I'm about to read, then, then you're, you're cold, like, you're cold, man. Your fingers and your toes are cold because your heart isn't pumping blood. This is a little scary. Let me read to you Acts chapter 5, okay? Acts chapter 5, the early disciples are forming the church, and there's this husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, who get a little greedy. with Some of their stuff. And it does not go well for them. So let me read Acts chapter 5. And we could talk more about that. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the Holy Spirit is clearly portrayed to us in the Scriptures as God. So uh, Ananias has withheld a little bit of what he was supposed to give. Peter said in verse 3 of chapter 5, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it, listen now what Peter says about his lie to the Holy Spirit, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so in his heart, when he was making the decision to deceive the Holy Spirit who was speaking to him to give generously, as he went against that, he was not lying to just this sort of Star Wars-like force that we sort of think of as the spirit. He was lying to God, and we could keep him reading, and it said right after that, boom, God killed him, knocked him down, and his wife who was outside, they bring her then in to meet, and, uh, well, what's your story, uh, Sapphira? Oh, how about, how about, boom, she's gone too. I mean, it's just brutal. It's brutal. And so the point is, is that the Holy Spirit in that verse, and again, we could read more, is clearly portrayed to us in the scriptures as God. So let's summarize those statements, 30,000-foot view of the Trinity. There's one God. He is also three persons, and each of those persons is fully and equally God. Now, friends, can we completely explain that? Absolutely not. Can, how can we How can we wrap our brains around that? Well, there's an end to our understanding. In fact, that's why at the beginning of the service we read from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8, 9, and 10, where Jeremy read that his thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. There is a limit to human understanding. 1 Corinthians 13 says that we see through a glass dimly. Friends, if we could completely explain it and understand it fully, that would be the time to get nervous. Because if we could completely identify it and stamp it and say, oh, I get that, then that thing would cease being eternal and immortal and incomprehensible in God. And so the Trinity is clearly a doctrine that the Scripture teaches. What are a couple common errors before we move on just quickly? Uh, modalism is an error that we see uh, that mean uh, this is the error of like oneness Pentecostals. Uh, that thinks that God is uh, is really only expresses himself in one mode or manifestation at a time that there's not really three persons of the Godhead there's just one expression at a time and so in the Old Testament they would talk about God the Father and then in the New Testament age with Jesus incarnate they would say that God mo- was in the mode of the flesh and now they would say that God is merely in the mode of the Spirit uh, many many churches there's very famous preachers on TBN that you shouldn't be listening to and should not watch, like T.D. Jakes, by the way, who believes this. This is an error. It's a heresy, and it believes that God is just expressing himself in modes. But then if you, if you look at the scriptures, how then, when you just look at the baptism of Jesus, how, how do you explain that God is only in one mode when you see the Father declaring his pleasure in the Son? You see the Son getting baptized, and you see the Spirit descending. So right there, that error that falls apart. Another error that is through the centuries of the church been attacked as the deity of Jesus. It started with some cat named Arius back in the 300s. And it was defended by another super, super awesome cat named Athanasius, which is an awesome name. If we ever have a fifth child, I think Athanasius might be his name if he's a boy. And if it's a girl, we'll just go like Athanasia and just make it feminine. But Athanasius wrote a creed back in the three and 400s that defended the biblical understanding of the Trinity Against this notion that Jesus was not fully God, that Jesus was somehow created later on. And, friends, why is it so important that we understand the nature of the Trinity, that all three members of the Trinity were eternally coexistent? God, specifically, more, why is it so important that we understand the deity, the complete divinity, the complete Godness of Jesus specifically? Why is that so important? And by the way, that air of Arianism rears its ugly head in Jehovah's Witness today and Mormonism. Again, come Wednesday to find more out about that. Why, though, is it so important that we understand that Jesus is truly God along with the Father? Because if we understand how great our sin is, then we realize that if we have sinned against a completely holy and righteous sovereign of all things... That the only one who can atone for sin, the only one who can make up for that, is God himself. No mere created being, no human made into God, which is the heir of Arianism, is sufficient. Is sufficient to atone for human sin. The scriptures clearly tell us that. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. 13, it says, for if the blood of goats and bulls, meaning the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And we know that even that sanctification was only temporary, because they had to keep bringing more bulls and goats every year, right? <laughs> right? So you, you bring a bull and a goat on the day of atonement one year, and it's sufficient for that year, but then you sin again, so you need another goat. And then you need it again and again and again. So even that sanctification was temporary. Then verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The point that the writer is writing there is that God is the only one who can satisfy his own holiness. And so Jesus is the only one. How much more has Jesus... Once and for all the whole gospel rests on this friends. That's why when you become a Christian you Stay a Christian because Christ who is not just the perfect man, but is fully God has once and for all Satisfied the justice of God the Father on the cross and if you take away Jesus's character if you take away his divinity if you take away that aspect of Christ you lose salvation then we're left to scurry again to make up for just another created being who couldn't quite satisfy the divine justice of god and so the trinity as i hope you understand by now is is absolutely essential and so let's now look again at the trinity in salvation. Here's three statements that I want you to see from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. I just want you to see this. We're going to read it quickly and then we're going to end with three or four statements about how we should respond to this. I want you to see in the verse that we read in Ephesians 1, and I mean, come on. I want you to stare in this. I want you to be encouraged if you're a Christian. I want you to just revel in this. And if you're not a Christian, man, I want you to see the power of God that he gives you. He has done the very thing that he calls you to understand. I want you to see the beauty of salvation from these verses. Okay, there's three statements that I want you to see about Ephesians 1. The Father plans for our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies our salvation. So let's look at at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, it says that God the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, it says that in love He predestined us for adoption as sons. We talked about what that means a couple weeks ago when we looked at predestination and the sovereignty of God. And He does this according to the purpose of His will. And so you, you have salvation being pictured to us in Scripture as... God is the plan, is the architect. This isn't like a get out of jail free. God wouldn't play a monopoly, and he landed on a bad square. And now he has to come up with a plan. God the Father has planned for your salvation. Friends, if you're a Christian, do you realize what that means? It means that God planned for you on that day when you passed from death to life that he deemed that to be so. Friends, we'll talk about I'm getting ahead of myself, but do you realize the incredible confidence and assurance that that gives us? We're Christians because God planned it. And secondly, we're Christians because the Son accomplishes all that is necessary for salvation. Look at at verse 4. It says that he did all these things. He adopted us. He predestined us. He chose us through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Some of us must say, well, why, why did Jesus have to die? Friends, we don't, look, God, God has deemed it so. Shouldn't that not show us how beautiful and how important salvation is and how wicked our sin is that God killed his own son on the cross and caused his blood to be spilled as the only means for accomplishing our salvation? Shouldn't that just cause you to, come on, if you're just a, you're just a kid that grew up in the South and you just kind of punched the ticket and got a bulletin from some church and you just kind of assume that you're a Christian and, and like wonder and worship has never captured you, friends. I want to rouse you from your religious slumber today. Now, come on, do you see this? Do you see the glory of God in your salvation? Do you see that it is the end for which you were created? You're not a Christian because you grew up in the South and because you live in the Bible Belt. It was planned for by God the Father and it was accomplished by God the Son at incredible cost. And God, who could have done it any way he wanted, deemed it to be this way as a display of his greatness. You see, friends, in salvation, listen to me, in salvation, God was creating a picture of his beauty so that we might behold it. And so we do no justice to our salvation when it's just like improvement, right? We treat salvation like God kept us from walking into a door or from bumping our head or stubbing our toe. Friends, that's not salvation. Salvation is is that our sin caused God's wrath and holiness and justice to be barreling down on us like a semi-truck on the interstate. And God in his kindness at great cost to himself laid his life down in front of that, stopped the judgment, and rescued us from our death. Why did he even do this? So that we could just be good moral people in the South that listen to Christian music, give a few dollars, and are critical about culture? No, friends. He did this so that we would see Him and worship Him to the praise of His glorious grace. And He does it through the work of His Son on the cross at great incomprehensible cost to the Trinity. And then... He doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just show us his greatness as the Father who's the architect and then just look at us to see hopefully that we'll wonder and look and trust in the work of the Son. He then, as God the Spirit, comes and applies salvation. This is what happens. This is why we preach the gospel. Look at verse 13. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, The gospel of your salvation and believed in him. And friends, people don't become Christians apart from hearing the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's why we don't preach silly little stupid stuff like five ways to have a better Tuesday here. That's why we preach the gospel every Sunday and all of the good doctrine that flows out of that. Because the only way that you become a Christian and the only way that you will grow in Christ is by hearing the word of truth. And that word of truth bears fruit. And so, by the way, if you're visiting here today or you're listening by podcast and you're just catching this service maybe on a disc a couple months from now. And you go to a church that spends all of their time when they open up the book or maybe they don't even open up the book and they just tell silly little stories. You've got to run from that place, man. I don't care if you're a Christian or you're not. If you're already a Christian, you need to hear the word of the truth preached. You need to hear it. It's the only hope. It's the only thing that can bear fruit in your life. We might have to buy another microphone. I'm sorry. (laughs) So listen, let's keep reading. We believed in him and we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit comes and he brings life. So the gospel is preached. God uses crooked sticks like me. He preaches the gospel through the mouths of men and women and his people. And then he takes that news, that news of what Jesus has done to atone for sin. And he opens up. He brings life. He gives life to a dead heart. And he causes that heart, the eyes of that heart, for the scales to fall from him. And he gives that heart that he is saving the ability to see. And he does that. By the life-giving spirit of God, friends. And so the very thing that he calls for, he gives by life in the spirit. Do you see the wonder of salvation? And not only does that spirit give life, but as we read here in 13 and 14, now it seals us. It seals us. Guaranteeing that we will stand before him someday. Yes, weak and weary, battered and busted up still wrestling with sin, but someday we will stand before God, and God is guaranteeing by his word that those whom he has caused to trust in him will stand before him one day, and we'll see him face to face and be glorified. Friends, do you see, I mean, come on, do you see how glorious this is? Do you see how this should cause you to wonder and worship God? And if, listen, if you're not a Christian, how, do, what, what do you, why, how are you not a Christian? How can you look at this and say, oh, I, I've got something better? how 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 come on this is so good it's incomprehensible it's beyond explanation how can you want anything else other than the glory of future with god himself that he completely does and he gives as a free offer come trust in jesus and listen if you're not a christian right now man i'm not asking you to recite some little prayer i'm not asking you to fill out a card or do something Right now, look to Jesus, right? He's given you life in your heart. He alone can do it. So turn and trust in Christ right now. That's what it means to be a Christian. Love God. Love what he has done through Christ on the cross. Look to him right now and believe. Turn from believing in yourself. Turn from sin and believe in Jesus right now. Do it right now. Believe. I believe that even right now, people are becoming Christians by the power of God's Holy Spirit, even now. Isn't that glorious? Finally, I end with these four quick thoughts about what our response should be to the Trinity. First, and I hope you've you've figured this out by now, it should cause us to worship. That's what you were created to do, Christian. You weren't created to, listen... I mean, come on, we have it so backwards so often. You weren't created to live a functional life. You weren't created to improve your life with the moralism of Christian ethics so that people would see that as you apply these leadership principles of Jesus, it makes your life work better, and people are going to want to become Christians. Come on, silliness! You were created in the mess that is still your life to worship God and point people to him. You were created to be a tour guide to the Himalayas of the grandeur of God. That's what your life is. It's a tour guide to the greatness of God so that people would come along, come along. Not so they can find a few little things to help them get through the week, but so that they can come along with you. You can say, look at this thing. Look at this glorious God. And it should cause us to worship. That's what we were created to do. It should cause us to long for and prioritize community. The Bible says at the very beginning in Genesis 1 that we were created in God's image. I believe that that speaks to the very heart of God's nature as a triune God. And as God's image bearers, we are hardwired. We're designed for community. Bruce Ware, a theologian from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote this about the Trinity. He said, the very fact that God, though singular in nature, is plural in person indicates that we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity to others, but as interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. Friends, you, look, you were created for community. You were created to be part of a local, you were created to trust in Jesus, to make much of Jesus and to join your life with other Christians in the expression of a local church to carry out his ways and his mission here on this earth. And let me just ask you a question before we go on. Have you humbled yourself and given yourself to biblical community? Are you trying to do life on your own? Friends, it fails. It doesn't work. I mean, you can end the, you, you know, get to the end of your life. You can build a pretty decent life, I guess, in regards to how this world looks at things. And you can sing along with Frank Sinatra at the end of your life, I did it my way. But do you realize, friends, how anti-biblical that is? And by the way, if you're a Christian, it just kind of keeps the church and other Christians at arm's distance because of some anxiety or some past hurt or whatever. Do you realize that you are making an idol out of some fear you're making an idol out of your bad experience in the past and you're exalting that up as the controlling truth in your life when the scriptures say that you were created to live in this beautiful interconnected way friends you need that you need that thirdly a response to the Trinity should it should cause us to better understand authority and submission Jesus who's the perfect human displays submission to the father's authority he comes to earth to rescue sinners. The Bible says that this plan, this architect of God, the plan of his salvation, was before the foundations of the world. And so Jesus' submission to God's authority is not the result of some fall or sin on our behalf, but that the Trinity is mutually submitting to one another, Jesus wanting to bring glory to the Father, the Spirit wanting to bring glory to Jesus, and the Father wanting to pour out his love so that Jesus would be worshipped. And so do you think about, just think about how we as rugged American individuals think about authority. We resist it. We're cynical about it. We're suspicious of it. And sometimes for good reason, politicians and officials and pastors who have failed us. Do you realize, friends, if we stop there and we just develop a bad idea about submission and authority, do you realize how we cut ourselves off from this beautiful picture in the scriptures that we see of the Trinity submitting to itself, Jesus submitting to the Father, the Holy Spirit submitting to the Father and the Son. Do you see that? We have this notion that submitting somehow, like God is wanting to just us to bow down. Do you realize, God, listen to this. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. God is not interested in your sort of begrudging, joyless submission. He calls us to submit to His ways for His glory and our joy. If you've heard from me today, if you're not a Christian and you've heard from me to tell you, oh, he just wants me to become a Christian so that you know, I can kind of live for God and kind of say no to all the good things in life. Friends, that's a lie, straight from the pit of hell. Submitting your way to God's way is the only pathway to true joy. The way God has clearly outlined life to be here, even in this earth, is clearly the pathway to joy. Fourthly and finally, It should give us great confidence and assurance. Seeing the Trinity should put steel in the spine of anxious, weak Christians like me. It should cause verses like Philippians 1, 6 to come alive, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It should cause confidence to swell up when we read 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. It says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, I'm convinced, that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Seeing the glory of the Trinity should put confidence and assurance and the steel spine in the back of a Christian as they fight sin and wrestle with evil struggle with the brokenness of this world. Christian, let's let this cause us to worship God so that we might be a more beautiful display, so that we might be better tour guides. To my non-Christian friend, whether you came into this room understanding that you weren't a Christian or thinking that you were, and by God's grace, he's revealed to you that maybe you aren't. How could you not want this? Come. Come and trust in the sovereign God who has planned, accomplished, and is ready to give the very thing that he commands from you. Trust in Jesus even now. Let's pray, friends. Father, um, Father, Would you do the things that we've been thinking about for these past few moments? For the Christians, would you cause worship to swell up in us? And would this worship not dead end on us? Would we not shuffle off to lunch and a nap and a work week that's full of just self absorbed spiritual knowledge? but would the things that we've considered today press on us to be tour guides to the world that you have put us in as we wonder at the glory of the Trinity. And Lord, for my unbelieving friend in this room, would you cause scales to fall from their eyes so that they would trust and the God of their salvation. Would you give them faith and would you give them repentance so that they can turn away from themselves and turn away from sin and turn away from destruction and turn away from counterfeit joy and turn in faith and belief in Jesus, who alone is good. God, I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name,